Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On the show this week, the Super Bowl was big this year. Really big. Uh, but not big enough to beat an economic crisis. We look at the problems at Paramount. Also on the programme, Channel 4 pushes back against Richard Osman's analysis of the troubled broadcaster. But who's right or more right? Our panel debate. All that plus we celebrate the life and work of Steve Wright. Find out why Piers Morgan is off to YouTube. Check out the differing fortunes of rival newspapers. And in the media quiz, divine what's really happening behind the scenes. Uh, That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, more details are emerging as a result of Channel 4's restructure. Broadcast reports that head of youth Carl Warner and Caroline Hollick, head of drama, are set to leave. And despite having shared leadership, the new drama and film teams will remain independent. Viewers in Poland were witness to an apology from the state broadcaster TVP on Sunday. This was for the years of shameful words directed to LGBTQ plus people as the channel sought to distance itself from a very close relationship with the former government governing party. And BBC Sounds claims a record 5 million listeners uh, using the app in a two-week period at the end of last month. They say the growth came from live listening and new podcasts, including the traitors Uncloaked. Now joining me at the London Podcast Studios, we welcome back someone who was managing editor of Radio 1 in the 90s, did strategy for the BBC, ran Disney in Europe, and now a kids media globetrotter, it's Paul Robertson. Hello. Hello. Hi. Nice to be back. Um, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I have been globetrotting a little bit. I went to India, which was interesting. Um, I was invited by the Indian government to go and talk about animation. Mm-hmm. Um, they think I know something about it. I know a little <laughs> bit. Uh, so nice trip. Went to Delhi. And um, there was one thing about the building, though. This is in the building where Modi holds all of his big events. There was no Wi-Fi. <laughs> because they designed it in such a way that it just could not accommodate routers. So there was no Wi-Fi. So you go was, that, and- was that lovely, actually? <laughs> It was sort of lovely and terrible because I know these people trying to read to me and I had no idea what was going on. So are they interested in production, building out skills or, or yeah. obviously it's a huge market as well? Yeah, there's about 500 animation studios in India um, and the Indian animation market for domestic is quite healthy. But what a lot of them can't do is hit the different standards for international. So mm. they're all trying to export uh, internationally because that's where the money is um, and so they're trying to learn how to produce global hits rather than just local hits uh, and also joining us uh, is someone who's just come back from uh, their own globe trotting <laughs> uh, but more from an enjoyable basis yes. come back from skiing uh, it's a journalist Scott Byron hi Scott hi lo- lovely to be here you Did right you, I'm, I'm very good uh, are you more parallel um, turns or snowplow I I mean I think that normally I don't actually turn my skis I just sort of go down and my friends who I've always been on holiday with said this was the first time that we went skiing that we weren't perpetually worried about your welfare like you're actually managing to now do subtle turns and stuff that's good that's good so yeah happy for myself and Uh, my progress uh, something you both got a connection to we both kind of talked about this week uh, is the sad death of Steve Wright Um, huge outpouring of um, kind of support and kind of interest in Steve and he's someone who's sort of been in people's lives for the last 40 years hasn't he Paul 
He has. It was extraordinary looking at the front pages of all the nationals. Practically every national newspaper had a picture of Steve Wright on the front. And I can't think of many people who get front covers and mm. haven't done anything bad. Yes. Um, and there it was. I mean, I worked with him at Radio 1 and I was sort of very privileged to do that, I guess. I mean, in two ways. I was sort of technically his boss, mm. although Steve didn't really need a boss. He's an incredibly hardworking guy. He was doing two till five on Radio 1 for about 19, 20 years. And he'd come in at nine o'clock with his uh, McDonald's breakfast <laughs> and sit down. And, but he, he worked. He was a real worker. I mean, he was fantastically engaged with the audience. He sort of understood what the audience wanted. You know, he was great with his guests. He, he managed to bring almost all the production staff into the, into the show. I mean, he invited me in to do voices. And of course <laughs> I said, yes, I'll do voices for Steve Wright in the afternoon and be one of his afternoon boys. Although you couldn't be afternoon boys now, I mm. guess. You have to be afternoon boys and girls. He, um, I mean, I think... You admire him for his creativity, his hard work, his sheer ability to survive in a world that changes. You know, then 23 years on, on Radio 2. Jim Moyer really was the guy who got him back, having you know, fallen out and, and did the breakfast show on Radio 1. Didn't really work out. And um, you know, together, he and I worked on that strategy, which was to put Jonathan Ross on Saturdays, Steve Wright on Sundays to reinvent Radio 2. And of course, the rest was, was history. And Steve, you know, I remember Steve saying to me after about a year, he said, uh, he said thank you for that. He said, I've got my leverage back. <laughs> um, and he did afternoons on Radio 2 very successfully. Um, and I mean, he, he was a, a strange person. And this has come out in mm. some, of, some of the obituaries incredibly focused on production and audiences could be quite mercurial as well and sometimes that's helpful in trying to stay to stay in media isn't it yeah it is I mean I found him quite difficult to persuade uh, and influence you know you had to influence you couldn't tell you had to persuade him and you know he would listen but he was you know he had very strong views and that was part of his strength he was also very shy of course um, you know, great in front of a microphone, but didn't really like doing the Radio 1 Roadshow. Mm. Not really. Didn't really work on television or Top of the Pops. He had his own studio at, um, at Wogan House, Radio 2, with curtains around it. <laughs> so you couldn't look into the studio when he was on the air because he was sort of creating this world of all these characters and, and, and stuff. And he wanted just to be, you know, intimate with the microphone, as it were, and, and talk to the audience and not be distracted by all the stuff around and that was part of his strength so I think a sad, a sad loss he went out obviously literally on air on Sunday and then died you know literally 48 hours later so I guess that's probably how he wanted to go because he devoted his life to his radio show uh, he did Scott I mean I would say that there was just something so inclusive about him like the fact that okay you are on radio too so obviously you are having a broad listenership but it was the fact that he just allowed anybody in. I, I was so taken just by the range of tributes that were and just how it crossed so many different generations earlier this week. I think it also caused, I mean, when you listen to radio, you sort of think about the times in which you were listening to it when I was younger. And I remember listening to this in my parents when my dad was taking me to the swimming pool when I was eight. And I think he sort of feels that when somebody like that, who's been a part of your life for many years, passes away, you sort of feel like you're losing the connection to your past as well. It is, it is so, so sad. And I think there's just something about his ability to connect with people, despite the fact that he was quite a private person. He didn't really know mm, much about mm. about his, his life and his sheer kind of way of communicating with the audience. I mean, specifically going and remembering that it's, you're only speaking to one person, not a mass amount of people. Um, it is. I mean, that that's the thing. I think it was also noticeable that Greg James, who of course is the Radio One um, host, and um, for breakfast, he played Steve Wright's theme on on Wednesday morning, the following morning. And of course, Greg James is a geek. He loves radio. Mm. But I would feel that actually to his audience, I think that they were feeling that loss too. It wasn't just for Greg's benefit. I think it was also for the listeners. Uh, and also, it's that thing. In in we talk a lot about audiences splintering and becoming kind of smaller he's sort of one of the last truly mass media operators oddly like i wouldn't really put steve Wright in a pamphlet of anything to particularly talk about but when you talk about those um those front pages and, and the kinds of response uh because he had that connection over so many years and on the radio which is a great medium that people make part of their lives mm. it's sort of fascinating that he's one that 
manage that. It is. I mean, if you look at the audience figures, they were very, very broad. I mean, he was mm. still bringing in older audiences and younger audiences too. He really had a, you know, in the going back to the old days of maybe ILR when it had a very broad audience, mm. Steve Wright was really that rather than it being segmented to a, to, a, to a younger audience. Just before coming here, I bumped into Bob Shen and we had a cup of coffee in the same place. And he was saying how he and felt... a controller ready too as a big BBC boss. And, you know, he was saying how he, he generally felt he'd lost a member of the family. You know, it was, a, it was, it was a grieving. And I think very few people could probably have that sort of impact on, on, on so many people. And a lot of people were inspired and influenced by him. I mean, he himself, of course, you know, borrowed from American Zoo formats. Mm. He borrowed a bit from Kenny Everett. But he created his own own thing. And the other thing you have to say is he was an absolute ratings magnet. When he came on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Radio 1, the ratings went up. And he did the same thing on, on Radio 2. He was very popular. Yet he didn't win many awards. Mm. It's funny, at the awards, you know, at the Sony Radio Awards, I remember having this conversation, people didn't really really want to vote for him it's funny I think maybe now they might change their view yes and David Lloyd I, I saw speak I think on Times Radio and he was saying yeah, there is a, a unique skill in being able to do the day-to-day really well every day um, and not suddenly be you know the world's most innovative broadcaster but someone that can choose basically the same records mm. every day in a different order in a different way is a real skill yeah. uh, that we don't necessarily think about but also and, having that sorry that sorry. that long-term plan as mm. well like sticking around for it i think some people still think that radio is a stepping stone to tv and therefore you'll be in it for a couple of years you can tell steve you know with steve like radio was him mm. through and through like yeah. he didn't really have that much tv involvement with do top of the polls he didn't like tv you didn't know, like he, it. he didn't like it and he thought it actually he didn't really want to be photographed you know he wanted to create this image he didn't want to be you know be seen i mean three hours a day you know long time the other person i would compare him to different genre different type of job altogether is roger scott mm. who did four hours a day and he was the same he didn't want tv he he wants to be, you know, a radio presenter who talked to the audience and related to the audience. And Steve and him and Roger, in the, in many ways, are, are very similar in their philosophy. Uh, we're talking about someone with sort of a real strong presence with audiences. Um, John Stewart returned to the Daily Show this week, the comedy news show uh, in America. He's just doing a single day. Scott, did you see his first show? I did. I was. I mean, John Stewart is like the the gold standard of late night satire. So the fact that he was able to get back into it with such ease was initially a shock but then it was a bit like oh wait hang on he did this for so many years and he invented this sort of late night form um i mean the ratings were really good i think the most viewed for that program for five years um also uh, paramount uh, used to be very adverse to putting things on the internet now they actually put the whole thing on straight away and that has i think on had a look on youtube had about more than six million viewers so it seems to have a bit of a connection i think he's a bit of an anomaly though when it comes to late night satire i mean i think there's been a 60 percent drop in um the ratings for late night tv shows in the us i think streamers have really struggled to try to do a show that mm. reflects the news i think just because the mentality of once it's on Netflix, it's on forever, whilst cable and late night TV shows over here can reflect on the following last week or or the last day. So I can see why he's only doing it once a week. It's, it's interesting. It, it, I think a bit like last week tonight with John Oliver, it's mm. just focusing on the last week. Perhaps there isn't that daily need now for a show. I think it's less of a daily show, more of a weekly <laughs> show now, uh, to be honest. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see whether he can sort of drag it back to being... You know, of real interest with audiences um he's also become executive producer of it and is sort of leading a sort of creative renewal as well yeah i mean i think i, I was reading i was seeing some graphs the other week about how much there has been a decline in in the daily show viewership of course that's coming at a time when in the u.s many people are cutting cable so it's really about whether you're able to have a singular consistent voice beyond John Stewart mm. perhaps for for next generation I think their show has been guilty of something that I think so many shows are guilty of at the moment which is having rotating hosts mm. I think it weakens the show because you're not able to get the consistency and when you're wanting someone to reflect on the news of the day you want to be oh you know what is this person's point of view you don't want to, have to sort of turn on the tv and just say oh who is it this time hey Paul John didn't need to go back he's made a few quid he can sort of do what he likes he had somewhat free reign at Apple until he felt he didn't have a enough um do you think he's come back because he's got something to say rather than wanting the bank account filled 
He probably is missing it, I imagine. You know, he, he has got things to say. He wants to share them. I, I think he probably is enjoying it. Um, I, I, do, I do agree exactly what you're saying. And that is, you know, it's about the relationship with the individual. You know, it's not a news show where the host is immaterial. It's actually about him. And if you like him, it's like liking a columnist in a paper, mm. isn't it? You want to read what that person's got to say. And we're interested in what he has to say. And he's come back and he's proven he's still got things to say. So good on him. Uh, we're talking about viewers. Um, a big news story about the Super Bowl's audience figures. Uh, 123.4 uh, million viewers. The, the numbers are always slightly complex and they change over time. So there was a line about this being like the highest numbers since the moon landing. Yeah. Which I think perhaps may be true. But it's always the case of when they always say since records began and then you look and then you go to yourself, <laughs> well, when did records begin? And of course, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, mm. it was impossible to really easily track how many people were watching. I mean, like this is the thing. It, there was a lot of obsession about this. Obviously, it hit a high benchmark in the US. But for a big sporting occasion, it does not reflect accurately really where TV is now, which mm. is going through a difficulty, particularly in the US, of large cutbacks. Paramount announcing cutbacks in the last week. CBS News announcing the same network as um, uh, who aired the Super Bowl announcing cutbacks the following day. Um, and then in the same case with like the UK, most watched. I think in the top 10, you had the Queen's funeral um, from just over a year ago. But of course, we have seen linear TV viewing changes uh, so, so, so I think it shows to me that when it does matter, when when people do sort of find that the TV is necessary to turn to, they turn to it in a big way. Paul, I mean, Scott's right. Is it an anomaly or does it actually show the direction that linear TV needs to take? Does it have to be big live events um, because streamers and others have, have stolen other formats? No, I think I agree with Scott. I mean, um, roughly 50% of viewing now is to non-linear in the US and the other 50 is cable plus broadcast. But um, the Super Bowl is, you know, it's hard to understate how big the Super Bowl is. And I think there is still this sense of this is one time when everyone comes together. Mm. And uh, because it's only available on broadcast networks, everyone gravitates to it. Um, and I do think there's still that need, that human need for sort of shared moments, uh, big moments, whether it's the Queen's funeral or it's the Super Bowl. Um, I mean, there were some other factors, I guess. There's obviously the issue that they're now measuring mobile out of home viewing for mm. the first time, which may have helped a bit. Uh, there's the fact it was actually a pretty good match and was very needle, 25-23, so it was close. And Taylor Swift is probably also... Uh, helps, doesn't uh, it? Helps a bit, <laughs> you know. But I think fundamentally, I think, you know, I think I agree with Scott. I mean, when people want to come together, they do come together. You know, everything is very fragmented. And this is something that in the US is a phenomenon. You cannot underestimate how big it is. You know, I was I was talking about it to some US colleagues and I said, oh, why is the number so big? And they said, you're joking. You don't know why? I'm thinking, well, I don't really, but let me try and work it out. It's just, you know, it's it's so in the DNA. It's a, you know, it's a must, must, must. Uh, Scott, as you said, um, CBS's parent company, Paramount Global, slews 800 staff, about 3% of its workforce, according to The Guardian. Um is this economy? Is this paramount underperforming? Is this the world? I mean, I think it's a combination, as in most things at the moment being a combination of factors. I think there's a lack of consumer confidence in terms of taking out subscriptions. There's been rumours about that paramount might be um, sort of uh, eaten up perhaps by um, HBO and on the other one now they're all merging into one in my head uh, yeah well there's um uh, independent group have maybe come together to to buy paramount yes um yes warner warner brothers um discovery warner, warner brothers discovery yes. and hbo it's like at the moment it's like trying to map in my, my head of who owns <laughs> who at the moment but yeah so so i think at, at the moment like you obviously you want to want to have a very tight chip um uh, in order to um be attractive to be bought but i think there's also just a sense at the moment i mean each week is so depressing at the moment because each week starts with another round of media layoffs. Mm. And Paramount have sort of missed out on uh, the boom that other streamers have had, haven't they? They haven't really managed to do it. Well, they came late. Um, I think their launch was pretty good. Mm. You know, I mean, they, they you know, started with Yellowstone and the Star Trek franchise and all of that. So they've, I think they had a pretty good start, but they have got problems that they can't launch in all the European markets because the rights are tied up with Sky and with others. And so they can't, they can't do that until those rights expire. Um, it, you, could, you could be right. It could be that they are um, getting themselves ready to be bought, or it could be defensive. It could be, in fact, that they don't want to be bought. Um, Warner Brothers Discovery have got massive debt. They overpaid. Um, and just servicing that debt alone is an eye-watering sum every month. 
um, Paramount might want to remain independent. I think, you know, for any content producer, you actually want Paramount to remain independent because the more buyers there are, the better it is for the production community. Um, so I'm hoping, in fact, Paramount do not get bought by, by Warner Brothers Discovery. The other thing they have said, of course, is Maria Kiriakou was, was fired, you know, sensationally. Uh, walked into her office and the following evening she left and it was announced on the Monday, you know, the president of International. I know Maria very well, of course, from her Disney and ITV days. Um, and they've said they're going to focus on Hollywood hits. Uh, so they're going to spend which is nice to say hard to do hard to do but I mean what it really says is we're going to spend less on content we don't think we need to spend as much to maintain our base you see Disney you know the latest um, uh, report you know their 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 um, uh, subscribers went down by over a million but their total revenue went up on the back of the price hike which was expected so you know you're seeing a repositioning here you know we're not we're not just about having as much content as we want we're going to optimize the amount of content and we're going to maybe accept a smaller a smaller base but we're going to focus on the on the financials the bottom line uh, well speaking of a change um news uh, this week that piz morgan is to come off talk tv's broadcast channel and move the show exclusively to youtube i mean scott that is the end of linear talk tv if your main stars off I mean, it's a heck of a PR spin they've they've done. Oh, they had, they've had, they had a real good go. Had, well, I mean, like the, the line that they've said is, oh, um, now by going onto YouTube, we've unshackled ourselves from linear TV. <laughs> My sense is that there was no real audience there to mm. begin with. I have been following this for some time um, just because I've been intrigued by whether opinionated TV can really take hold in this this country. And I think it's been in free fall for Piers Morgan on Centre since it began. It started with about 300,000 viewers. Uh, by April it, uh, by April 2023, uh, an episode received 22,000, which is a fall of 95%. Um, and then in that July, an episode of Jason uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg on GB News had 100,000, uh, whilst Piers Morgan had only 14,000. Um, and then uh, in September last year, a midnight repeat of Nigel Farage on GB News had more than mm. Piers had. So, yes, he is getting particularly long form interviews quite well on YouTube. Um, I did a bit of a research in 14 million with Andrew Tate, 6 million with Ronaldo, about half a million for Rishi Sunak. I mean, if you hit me, look at that and you'd go, well, maybe I should just be on YouTube then. But I mean, if you I mean, it's just the fact that if you look at how many of those hits compared to the actual rest of the videos, it's right, not, yes. not really stacking up. Mm. I mean, like, uh, and I guess he can say, right, I'll just forget a lot of the other nonsense I used to do in the show and focus on maybe doing one big story and trying to land it and maybe not having a daily um, release cycle, which you would be tied to with, with a daily release. But I still don't think this is them saying this is a win. Like, yeah. I still think this has been a massive, massive financial um, failure for them and I also think that it puts the rest of Talk TV up for um, you know they've, they've managed to change the whole station to be very much um, fo- focused as being a sort of live streaming TV channel I think the ratings have not really broken through and that's cost them a considerable amount of money and affected think, talk, the talk radio as well well uh, yeah because I was in a cab the other week and the guy was listening to um, talk uh, radio but of course all the branding all the um, uh, um, words you hear from the DJs are all saying you're watching talk TV and I keep thinking to myself this is a radio station this is so confusing so as a brand it's confusing mm. um, so there's been a lot of reporting I think Adam Sherwin in the eye saying earlier this week that there's rumours about and speculation about maybe it will be rebranded to Sun TV but I mean, it's it's a big, been a costly, costly, costly investment. I mean, there's been some discussion that apparently Rupert Murdoch has been talking to GB News about whether there's an acquisition or a, or, or a combination. I mean, GB News does what it does well for that audience. And figures okay, you know, it's, mm, they're I mean, still low. But they're still they, very but low. I mean, they they've have, never been able to match they, what they had for the opening night. But Rishi Sunak still had about 100 or what, so thousand. But on a daily basis, it's still not high. But it's still a build, definitely a build on what Talk TV is doing. And Paul, do they only need 100,000, you know, big right-wing fans? And they want to be an influence network. It's the people behind it rather than it being a, a broadcast project yeah i was going to say it's about the goals isn't it you know if you want to make a business that's going to make a big financial return it's probably not the business to be in um whatever you think of gb news the difference is gb news does stand for something Mm. you know what gb news is love it or hate it i think talk tv you don't really know what it stands for and there are plenty of other places to go 
As far as Piers Morgan is concerned, um, you know, he's about making sure his name is out there. I mean, Piers Morgan is brilliant, isn't he, at seeding a story, and it's about Piers being controversial mm. and, and saying something. And, and he's a good broadcaster. And he's a good broadcaster. Mm. And look, YouTube is the second biggest social platform in this country. 44 million people use YouTube. So in terms of reach... Uh, him reaching people, YouTube's a great place for him. So for Piers Morgan, it's a tick. For Talk TV, probably death. Uh, well, uh, speaking of GB News, you may have seen uh, last week that Ofcom have cleared host Neil Oliver of complaints. Um, Scott, Jay Martin had an interesting take in The Guardian this week. Uh, did you see what she said? I mean, this is the whole thing about the GB News basically having this um, story um, by um, Neil Oliver that was kind of casually mentioning uh, quote-unquote turbo cancer being linked to vaccines and then Ofcom coming back and say well you know this is someone's personal point of view Um, we're not going to actually launch an investigation about it and I think what's so telling is what's so shocking is like you're making it's making you go okay well what does breach your rules what what does launch an investigation and I think Jane's article you know, sort of points out about it's a bit obtuse it, it seems to be the only case that the Ofcom know for themselves exactly what does break the rules and what could potentially not break the rules and it's very much like GB News itself is really just seeing where the line is itself and, and trying to push that as much as it physically can i mean paul like me you've had to look at the broadcasting codes over the last few years over the last 20 years and try and at least and (laughs) and try and navigate through them and sometimes push them i mean i read some of the some of these things and i am i'm surprised what they're managing to sort of get away with and this is the difference between kind of news and kind of current affairs content and basically if you're not news content you can sort of get away with much more Yeah, I mean, it is difficult, isn't it? I mean, no one's going to argue for uh, reducing free speech in this country. Of course not. We know the fact we have such strong journalism is actually a great strength of this country. However, I was surprised because I thought, "Mm, hang on a second. What about people who might have lost loved ones here? You know, what about the fact that this might discourage people from... Uh, taking vaccinations and mm. indeed to the piece you mentioned earlier I mean apparently it's had an impact on measles inoculations mm. you know fewer kids are being inoculated which is clearly very bad so I was surprised I mean I don't want to criticize Ofcom but there have been one or two strange decisions by Ofcom recently not just this one you know the BBC local radio one and various mm. others I just wonder a little bit about the the leadership there at the moment I, I mean I hope the regulator is doing its job but this one I, I was a bit surprised is this for Ofcom at the challenge of dealing with a multimedia world like when it was a regulator that basically regulated probably the main four channels five mm. channels and then a bit of cable and satellite but it didn't really cause them much trouble fixed number of radio channels didn't have to worry about the internet that actually was pretty manageable plus your news broadcasters in the UK ITN Sky BBC pretty much is good and fine and doesn't drift into any of this have they just suddenly woken up to a a new nightmare well it's certainly more complex um and there are many many more outlets and it is more difficult to monitor let alone to uh, decide uh, i mean we know don't we from radio days that in fact ofcom's view was we'll wait until someone complains mm. Uh, now, you know, in, in this case, there are only 70 complaints. So maybe Ofcom thought, therefore, it was not a particularly significant one. I'm surprised by the ruling. I think they uh, maybe should go back and look at this again. I, I personally do not agree with the ruling. Scott, it's kind of interesting that you know, GB News is the home of Tory MPs uh, who are often presenters. And Rishi Sunak appeared on GB News on Monday in a by-election week, uh, the sort of thing which Ofcom Electoral Commission didn't uh, normally used to like. Mm. Um I mean, partly they've been embraced. They are the establishment, aren't they? I mean, this is the whole sort of thing when I think GB News originally set themselves up being um, like, you know, we're the anti-establishment. We get to say what really is happening. And then you've got Boris Johnson joining you. So you're sort of thinking, oh, how can you still have that Mm. sort of messaging? And I think it's going to be fascinating as we enter the election year. Because, of course, there are real rules. And this is when we're going to be, I guess, having more of a focus on Ofcom guidelines again about having... um, potentially you know a lot of your own gb news presenters not being able to be on your own Mm. broadcast for weeks for months potentially um, whilst the channel is still trying to position itself as an election channel now i think where the channel does have strengths is perhaps attracting audiences that don't really watch bbc don't really watch sky uh, particularly in the north but you're wondering about whether 
I mean, you know, firstly, what will happen um, if, uh, you know, a, a it is seen to be taking the side more towards Tory views during an election period mm. and how will it be able to navigate that? Or is it just going to see where the rules are and see where the line is and try to get as close to the line as possible? And worry about that later. Uh, thanks, Scott. We'll be back with more media news after this. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of Jarvis Cocker's stage invasion of Michael Jackson's performance at the Brits. Then on Tuesday, we tell the story of the Spaniard who named Florida. On Wednesday, the birth of instant photography, the Polaroid camera. Thursday was the day Dolly became the world's most famous sheep. And on Friday, the foiled 19th century plot to kill the entire British cabinet. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. 10 minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Uh, welcome back. Scott and Paul are back for some more news in brief. Uh, last week, Richard Osman on some other podcast uh, laid out his reasons for the crisis at Channel 4. And this week, Chief Exec Alex Mann uh, responded in The Guardian. Um, Scott, what did she say? So, I mean, it's firstly to say what Richard said. I mean, Richard said that uh, uh, that Channel 4 does many great things and has done many great things, but it hasn't really had anything that's been a big hit for a while. I mean, it's mm. relying on old successes such as Taskmaster, which was essentially bought from Dave from Bake Off, uh, which was, um, you know, before Ian Katz, um, because that was um, under old management. So there's been a, a lack of new hits coming through. He does mention the piano, but there's been mm. nothing um, since. And he says that there is a law of diminishing returns if you're not having a new hit then people aren't going to stick around for the other shows and then those won't be hit so then that will mm. mean that people won't stick around for the other shows so so he says that channel four is in real real trouble now alex mahon has said well you know actually we are having big hits the piano's been um, been a big hit big boys has been a big hit um uh there's also been um uh, to, to, uh, i think the russell brand investigation by dispatchers last year but I mean, personally speaking, I mean, I, I'm looking at the TV market um, as just a reviewer and I'm thinking, well, how many shows am I getting really excited by on Channel 4? I mean, if you look at the start of this year, I have on my phone just a guide of like all the TV shows I absolutely loved. And I've had you know, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office on there and ITV. I've had um, uh, Criminal Record and Apple TV Plus on there. I've had The Traitors on BBC on there. So far, no Channel 4 show has been there. They have done good programs. Mm. There was a minor strike doc, 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 documentary I've seen. Big Boys has come back on series two, but no blowout hit that everyone's been talking about. And I think I, I am leaning towards what Rich is saying. I'm getting worried. Uh, Paul, I mean, we give, I always feel like we're giving Channel 4 a bit of a kick in every week on, on the show at the moment. Um, they've had a tough time. They've changed a lot of how they run. There's a lot of uh, things happening all around the country, a lot of good things, but it just seems to be stuck in a bit of a rut. Well, I think as well as what Scott said, which I do agree with, there's also the issue about the advertising market, which has turned down. And uh, ITV are feeling this too, of course. 
Um, and they've also got this challenge of transforming to become a digital broadcaster. And I was talking to someone this week about ITV and the problem there with ITVX is that ITVX is getting really good engagement, but it's not yet making really good money. And of course, every impact- Is that, su- is that ad supply or not enough audience to- Lower CPMs. Okay. Lower, okay. C- lower CPMs on the, on the digital service. The amount service. of money the advertisers are paying- Less per yes. impact. Yeah. Um, so ITV want to obviously move people across to ITVX, but every impact that moves across, they actually lose money on. So of course, that's going <laughs> to- I gonna love dis- the media. <laughs> that's going to discourage them from moving people to ITVX. Mm. But ITVX is clearly their future. Mm. So you see the dilemma. So, But ITV have got more scale. I mean, ITV control the display advertising market in the UK. Channel 4 is a much smaller beast, much smaller revenue, but they've still got the cost of running a 24-7 TV operation. And they're meant to be this commissioner broadcaster. So it's more complex and they don't have their own production. Mm. And obviously ITV make a lot of money now from ITV Studios and ITV Studios is contributing more and more to the total revenue on ITV. Channel 4 don't have that. So they've got this sort of double bind of um, they're not getting hits coming through which might be their commissioning process or might just be there's nothing new being made Um, and they've also got declining advertising revenue so it's very very difficult. I mean um, Alex Mann does take a bit of a swipe and says oh the independent production community is going to be damaged. I would say to her one thing you could do about that is actually spend more money domestically and less money on third-party acquisitions. There's a lot of shows on Channel 4 which are also on Netflix and they're paying a very, very healthy license fee to acquire You know, shows like The Big Bang Theory, Modern Family uh, and so on. They don't need to be on Channel 4. Mm. Why not spend that money on UK independent production? And they can draw down more cash. They've got they've got sort of like an overdraft facility that yeah. they, they haven't chosen to do. Um, obviously, they get the chance now to go into production, um, change change the rules for Channel mm. Four. They can make their own things. That will obviously scare the production community because they like the fact they get one hundred percent of the material. Um, how should they embark on that? Should they buy something? Should they build something themselves? What what should their production outfit be? I would be going shopping. I mean, the way ITV have built it up is largely by acquisition. Mm. You know, they, they've, they've been acquiring over a period of time and they've built up, you know, a series of, well, I mean, ITV Productions is really a whole bunch of independents that have been bought and acquired. Um, I think Channel 4 should do the same thing. Look at some of their key suppliers um, and uh, they could stake in the minority interest initially, couldn't they, which might give them mm. a favoured um, uh, commissioning structure. Um, but no, I'd, I'd be building up my own independent production base. And look, there's a big market outside the UK. You know, you work in the, in the mm. kids' business. You know that you cannot make money from a kids' TV show just in the UK. That's increasingly becoming the case too in other genres. So if they can sell Channel 4 content overseas, that would make a massive difference to their bottom line. Uh, let's finish this week with a few quick press stories. Uh, the Spectator's editor, Fraser Nelson, has warned against selling his magazine to foreign nationals, saying that Redbird IMI, that's the uh, the people that have uh, seemingly acquired the Telegraph um, and the Spectator. Uh, the sale to them would have a profound impact on UK media. The government's still deciding whether they should be allowed to. Um, Scott, is that a sort of warning letter to the government of the, the sort of established uh, journalists trying to spook the deal? I mean, it's, it's, it is fascinating just seeing this all play out in public, I think. I mean, I was like a few weeks ago, I was in WH Smith and I just saw the front page of the Daily Telegraph and there was a front page story about essentially itself on the mm. front page. And, um, you know, the spectator with Fraser Nelson talking so openly about this. I mean, there's implications there for the reader um, because they would be thinking, oh, you know, there would be, I think, Daily Telegraph readers, spectator readers are very loyal, would be very loyal. But if, of course, what's been said is that senior journalists would leave or would no longer have anything to do with it, that would possibly spook them. And then, of course, would make the Daily Telegraph less of an attractive um, uh, um, outlet to, to begin with. Now, of course, Jeff Zucker has said that um, with the Telegraph, you know, it would be independent. They would have a panel, advisory boards, and so so forth. But I mean, it's just a fact. Of course, this has been going on and on and on for weeks, and this won't be the last time you'll be talking about this on this podcast. But also, Paul, media has been controlled by strange groups of people forever, hasn't it? Why do you think that? Why do you think the sort of senior Telegraph bods are kind of drawing a line and saying most of which have worked for Murdoch Media, most of which have worked at other places too? Why are they going? No, no, we don't want them. I don't know. I mean, I've worked for some of those strange people too. <laughs> and 
Were we worried when Sky made Channel 5's news? I don't think we were. I don't think anyone was scared or, or you know, the horses didn't bolt. So why are we worried on this occasion? I think it's a non-story. I, I've no idea why this particular media property should be treated like this. It's business as usual as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I mean, Scott, one argument that's, that newspapers have always sort of shied away from is sort of being critical of their funders and also um, other other proprietors. It's sort of an immerter over all of that. Uh, Press Gazette made the connection to Peter Oborn's resignation for the Telegraph, uh, who he claimed had remained silent over HSBC criticism uh, when they were a big advertiser. Um, I mean, does this just sort of play into it's fine when it suits you? I mean... <sighs> There is always going to be, I think, essentially a bit of a conflict of interest of no matter who owns you in regards to other media properties, that you're not going to have criticism of those other media properties. I think that sort of goes without saying. I think it's another different thing of if you are tied to a company that has many different interests and many different companies, because, of course, if that company is embroiled in a very big issue and it's somehow not being reported on by your own papers, then then that raises questions about our democracy and about whether the right stories and the right people are being challenged i think it's the it's just this ongoing issue it's not one that i think is entirely new i think if you look at private eye the amount of times it's pointed out <laughs> that a certain company has not been written about by a certain newspaper because a certain person who owns it might have certain mates or mm. a certain business interest in that this has been a long-standing issue in british uh, media ownership uh, radio broadcasters too uh, and the guardian and mail have both published financial updates this week um paul it didn't look like a great result for the guardian no, not not good at all. Um, revenue down, um, you know, debt um, bad. I mean, the only thing that really, the only bright spot was the digital revenues up by three million. So a pretty small percentage, but at least it's up. Really, the same issue as we mentioned just now with um, ITV and Channel Four. You know, transformation for the Guardian is proving to be challenging and mm. time-consuming. Uh, and Scott, the Mail has fared um, a little better despite the ad downturn. Why do we think that is? Um, it's mostly they say I think it's been offset from events primarily in the United Arab Emirates um, doing fairly well I mean I think it's you think the they'd be supportive of these acquisitions of the Telegraph then <laughs> but it's but it's the case that of course in the last few years that, that a lot of media companies had sort of felt well the future's in events and mm. investing a lot of, of events and then of course the pandemic happened and that was the thing that nobody could actually go and do and I think of course, with the consequence of many of us working from home, which is being a freelancer, may I say, I am in support of. Um, I think, I think you know, that has had a knock-on impact about the, the potential about media companies investing in events in themselves over here. But I mean, it seems to do, be be doing better um, internationally. Uh, okay, just enough time for the media quiz this week. Entitled, definitely, maybe. A few new media projects have been announced this week, or have they? You <laughs> tell me if the stories reported are definitely true or maybe true and dependent on official confirmation. Uh, so buzz in with your names if you know the answer. Uh, so Scott, you'll say... Scott. And Paul, you'll Paul. say... Paul. Uh, let's play <laughs> Definitely Maybe. Question number one. Uh, Netflix is to release its dramatisation of the Prince Andrew Newsnight interview in April. Scott. Yes. Definitely or maybe? Well, it's definitely because we've seen it. I mean, we've seen it, the Gillian Anderson um, trying to imitate Emily Maitlis. Looks great. Looks great. Have you, got, have you seen it? I have, yeah, yeah. Billy Piper in there as well. Rufus Sewell is in mm. it too. I mean, this is the thing. Like, it is based on the book. I have not read it from one of the producers, I think, or one of the sort of key people that helped set up the mm. interview in the first place. And of course, it was a big coup. I guess there's a big question of, is there going to be enough material to make this blowout? Yeah, when people... the interview itself was blowout, but it's like, what else is there to tell us? I mean, Paul, some people have sort of argued, you can't just watch the interview. It's on the internet. It's do, do you need to see a drama about it? I mean, I think it's extraordinary that Gillian Anderson is playing <laughs> Emily Maitlis. I mean, you know, a Hollywood actress is, is playing a you know BBC journalist. I mean, it's fantastic. No, I thought the clip was great. Mm. I look forward to seeing the whole thing. I, I think it's just got an energy about it. I really think it's uh, just, just stands on its own. I mean, I will reserve my judgment to see. I, I never like sort of like, adding saying oh it's going to be rubbish it's been like I always try to wait until we see okay. it when, when you, you watch it I think you might like it no, when are you going to so. get previews um, when's it out again it's quite soon isn't it yeah, no, no, I mean they filmed it because we've seen it yeah. so yeah it, sh it shouldn't be that long <laughs> okay uh, question number two okay definitely or maybe Gavin and Stacey is to return with a special Paul, at Christmas definitely happening oh I, well, I hear it's definitely happening. Well, well, nod. well, like many people... I mean, I'm very well connected to James Corden, you know. Well, many people have said <laughs> that it's definitely happening. Uh, but maybe it's moved into the maybe column because Ruth Jones was on RTE this week. Um, yeah. 
sort of saying where do these people come from so was she was she denying it so though? from my understanding is deadlines i i know that deadline sourcing um you know i i've i know the people who wrote, wrote the story well and they say that their sourcing is very good okay. with with their original story that's saying that that um gavin and stacy's coming back I think um, you know they they really do think it's happening, and could they say that that, that you know that there is that you know, it is going to be very likely? I think deadliners also would have to be fairly confident in publishing that mm. story in the first place. Um, Ruth has said, "Well, if we had something to announce, James and I would announce it." But if you also watch the interview, she doesn't categorically deny mm. it of the possibility the, of it happening. And I guess the BBC it's about do need something for Christmas. I yes. mean, you know, Mrs. Brown's boys ain't happening; is not working. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Uh, Gavin and Stacey is a guaranteed banker and BBC do love to own Christmas but there is well a new Wallace and Gromit this Christmas as well they okay. have spent a few years on Ardman have been sort of doing big projects for Netflix in recent years so I mean don't get me wrong like Gavin and Stacey slightly had, different audiences yes and of course Gavin and Stacey had 17 and a half, 17 and <laughs> yeah, a half million so the BBC would be thrilled yeah so I, I yeah alright okay. let's see but the BBC's not denied it either they've just oh, not right. commented so, so, so maybe you do get a point Paul I, I get half a point or maybe at three, least, at least or maybe we have half each okay well let, let's see who answers this me one points. Uh, <laughs> question number three uh, Boom Radio's launched a new station called definitely, Boom Rock Paul definitely yes it is definitely um I mean, Boom Radio's done great. Uh, we've talked about it a bit on the show. Three years old, a reach of uh, nearly three quarters of a million, or over three quarters of a million. Um, they've added uh, a light station now. They've added a rock station. Um, it's the right thing for them to do, isn't it? I think it is. Um, I mean, there's some evidence their reach has started to level off in terms mm. of growth. So they now need to give it another sort of kick, I think. Um, and the rock station is great because, I mean, if you listen to Boom Radio, it, I, they've done a really good job in mixing together music. But there are times when you think, well, I'd rather not hear that maybe 50s record and hear some with a bit more guitar. Mm. So Nicky Horn has been very much part of this. And, uh, you know, I, I declare an interest here. You know, I listen to Your Mother Wouldn't Like It on Capital. You know, I work with Nicky at Radio 1. I work with Nicky at um, Talk Radio. He he knows his music and he's been very involved in the choices. And I have listened and it's been a very well-crafted mix of, of music. I mean, and he's bringing back your mother on Saturday mm. afternoons. Um, and uh, Roger Day's doing a show on there and uh, a guy from um, Radio Trent called Gary Burton. That's the mm. one. Uh, he's on there. So I think this is going to be good. I mean, how much it was going to add? I suspect it will add more hours than reach. I think it will definitely grow their hours, add a bit to their reach. But so far, uh, I'm impressed and uh, good on Boom, yes. Well, Boom's done a good job generally, you know, from the ground up mm. put the money where the mouth is grown an audience and I hear it's doing pretty well financially as well um, they were somewhat shocked uh, la- uh, this week uh, last week well, last week when the BBC announced that they were going to launch their own similar spin-off station to Radio 2 um, I won't say the word that Phil Riley sent me in a DM when uh, he heard about it uh, he was pretty annoyed um, he's right to be annoyed he is right to be annoyed. Um, the BBC have abandoned that audience and moved Radio 2 younger. Um, I think it won't be the same as Boom. Mm. I mean, it will have to be distinctive in terms of content. So it will include a lot of archive material, a lot of sessions, a lot of interviews. Uh, it won't be DJs playing records. But nevertheless, it's targeting an audience that otherwise the BBC appeared to know, show no interest in. So I don't think it's going to um, kill Boom off. It probably will hamper its growth. And it does feel a bit like public money being used to distort the market. The issue, I think, is that the public interest test, as I understand it, could stop them launching on DAB, but could not stop them launching it on BBC Sounds. So I suspect these services will launch uh, whether or not the public interest test passes. So um, more competition on the way. And I understand that uh, word saying, uh, Phil saying he was rather unhappy about it. Yes. uh, I asked the BBC some questions this week about the uh, announcement they made about the public interest test. And mm. as, as Paul said, it looks like uh, it's going to happen. It's just whether it happens on DAB. Now, will they get that far? I think there will be you know, some, some big responses. Um, I mean, I just sort of think it's like the classic case of the BBC being in a situation where it's damned if it does, damned if it doesn't. Mm. Because there has been this idea of, you know, we are not catering for audiences who are not happy with the direction that Radio 2 has taken. So the BBC makes a take to cater for those audiences and is criticised for affecting the commercial market that's built up in that time. So I guess there is going to be this to and fro about it. I mean, I would say that what I find interesting about Radio 1 
Dance and Radio 1 Relax, which are the existing stations, is that there's not new content. It's essentially mm. just spinning the stuff that's on late at night or on Sundays throughout the rest of the week. So I know that with that long announcement that, that was in there last week about how much new content there, there, there will be, but you sort of wonder about how much it is just going to be repackaged and whether that matters, whether mm. viewers are just ha- listeners are just happy for for yeah, just I, um, I, I, archive I, content. They published a bit more information this week, including budgets, uh, and they're sort of saying they're going to spend about £3 million across the four stations, uh, which isn't, in BBC terms, a lot of money. Um, and also the, radio, the new Radio 1 spin-off, so not Dance, the other one. I think they've only budgeted £120,000 a year for, which... Well, that's tiny. Which is, which is not... It's not big. And I, I, you, you read it all, and I feel like... So someone pointed this out this week, that it looked like the Radio 1 spin-off was going to be Relax, and then at the last minute it changed to something else. Right. So I think there's there's more to come out of all of this. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that um, you know, pay TV's been doing what you described for years, and it does generally produce incremental increases mm. in, in reach and, and share. I think what's interesting about this is that radio um, generally produces very little unique reach to the BBC. So the BBC's argument that they need these services to reach people is actually erroneous. What it would do is increase the hours consumed of the BBC by those audiences because they're already consuming BBC television and BBC online services. So they don't need it for universality, which underpins the licence fee. So for, for that reason, I think the argument is a bit weak. Um, however, you know they're they're basically doing what the commercial radio yeah. sector's been doing. They're, they're they're creating all these different segments, and they're going to get incremental value for incremental spend. Uh, I suspect it's going to go through. Uh, well, we will keep an eye on it on the show. Uh, congratulations to Paul. You win. Uh, you have to go and find... Uh, I think it's one and a half each. I really feel guilty about that now. I, I feel bad well, now. No, no, no. I, th- I think you have one because as a prize, you've got to go and find the Hollywood star who can play me in the Netflix uh, documentary spinoff of the media podcast. Oh, OK. Well, I'm thinking about that already. Maybe you and McGregor? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. yeah, it'd be good. good. Uh, <laughs> more thoughts later. Um, uh, thank you both. How can people keep up with your work, Scott? Uh, just on Scotty GB, on Twitter slash X, and um, on Fred's and, and various other places. And on course on Five Live, where I'm there every Monday. Uh, and Paul, people can see you in person soon, can't they? Uh, Radio Days Europe. Uh, Radio Days Europe in Europe. Next month, I'll be uh, on stage uh, putting the glue between all the wonderful people, and you'll be there too, Matt. And if not, if not that, on LinkedIn. Uh, lovely. Uh, thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. you. And if you have a podcast in you, why not check out the London Podcast Studios? Because the London Podcast Studios is where we record our show. And they're offering 25% off your first booking when you use the code MEDIAPOD. Just head to thelondonpodcaststudios.com for 25% off with the code MEDIAPOD. Uh, If you're new to the show, why not hit follow uh, or maybe leave us a review? In fact, please go and leave us a review. I would like some nice ones uh, on Apple, uh, please. Uh, uh, Alternatively, if you go to podfollow.com, slash the media podcast that sends people uh, to be able to listen really easily uh, and if you have first-hand experiences of any of the stories we've talked about you don't need to talk to a counsellor you can put a note in Spotify there's a comments box uh, we love hearing what you think uh, my name is Matt Deegan the producers were Ollie Pitt and Matt Hill it was a Rethink Audio production I'll see you next week Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.